Hey, everyone. Before we start the show, I want to point you to a CNN podcast that's been doing daily reporting on the war in Israel. It's called Tug of War. And it's a show that's covered issues and conflicts from Syria to Sudan and Ukraine. And the team has been doing excellent reporting on the Israel-Hamas war with CNN correspondents in the field. And it feels different from the coverage that you might be used to. So we'd love for you to give it a try. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And in the meantime, we're going to talk today about some of the things people turn to for comfort when times are tough. Love and books. So I hope you enjoy this episode. The story we'd heard for a while about bookstores, especially indie ones, was that they were destined to wither away. That what was started by Barnes & Noble and Borders and other big chains, Amazon finished when it made it possible to snag any book, any time, at an unbeatable price with a click. Then there was the industry panic over e-readers, and, well, you know the rest. Bookstores are now feeling the burn. They're just big and bulky, and they're not convenient to have with you at all times. Digital distribution has steadily eroded physical sales, causing some traditional brick-and-mortar chains to go under. Today comes news that Borders will close and liquidate all 399 of its stores. Barnes & Noble, which owns B. Dalton, says it's shutting down all of its small stores, and that means Laredo, Texas, population 250,000, is a city without a bookstore. But out of the ashes of those trend stories arose a new business model, the single genre bookstore. Ooh, sexy, baby, it's an erotic bookstore. This is Anything a skit from SNL about romance bookstores. Welcome to the scorched corset where fantasies delight. And it turns out SNL writers did not pull this weird scenario out of thin air. It, we know it was about us because her friend writes on the show. Yeah. It was and so like, I got confirmation. And so they, is, is this play about us? Yeah. He said, yeah. <laughs> in real life, that bookstore is called The Ripped Bodice. Other stores in this vein, The Meat Cute in California, The Blush Bookstore in Kansas, and Love Sweet Arrow in Illinois. And if you're wondering how it's possible to make money running a bookstore that only sells one kind of book, today's guest will tell you they get that a lot. You know, we constantly heard... Why would you limit yourself to one genre? Like, why would you pigeonhole yourself like this when we were starting out? I I believe 110% we would not be sitting here today if we sold all genres. Romance is the best-selling fiction genre in America. How did that happen? And how have those stories evolved to match the desires and concerns of a new generation of readers? in this post-Me Too era. I'm Audie Cornish. This is The Assignment. Okay, a little data from Publishers Weekly. Last year, printed sales in the category of adult nonfiction were down, around 10%. But if you are in the business of selling so-called bodice rippers, business is actually good. My name is Leah Koch. My pronouns are she, her, and I am one of the owners of the Ripped Bodice Bookstore. And this is my (laughs) co-owner. My name is B. Hodges Koch. I am the co-owner of the Ripped Bodice, and I'm also an author of the book Mad and Bad Real Heroines of the Regency. Okay. um, Who who are you to each other? Oh, we're sisters. sisters. (laughs) (laughs) Um, B is two years older than I am. 
This past August, the sisters opened their second location in Brooklyn because they realized an algorithm is not the only way to serve the modern book-buying customer. This is just a personal opinion. This is Leah. Like, everything is just so impersonal that I think one of the reasons people like our store and stores like ours is that it feels very personal. And everything that we do is because we want to do it. I think it's also that, like— No matter how many books I read, an algorithm can only recommend things that I've already read or things that are very similar to what I've already read. Mm -hmm. It doesn't know what I might like. And it doesn't know what you liked about the book. So we can delve deeper like that. Also, I just realized when we were talking about other independent genre booksellers, there's like a ton more romance now. Mm -hmm. Because since we've opened— there's five, five other romance, other romance bookstores have opened. San Diego, Louisville. Um, Chicago, two in Chicago. Chicago, and then that town in Maine that I can't remember the name of. And then two in Canada. And then two in Canada. Yeah. There was a 52% increase in sales of romance books. Um, this was just last year. What do you think is driving that? Pandemic meets TikTok at the exact same time. It was not either of those individually, and it's not only that, but pandemic means everybody's stuck at home, everyone's massively depressed, <laughs> has more time on their hands. TikTok is is gaining steam at this point. Especially. And Leah, you're talking about also book talk. Yeah, yes. yeah. Right? Yeah. Like the just the extremely powerful influencer culture of people who are just recommend, discover and recommend books to, yeah. to their followers on TikTok. And I think— At this particular moment in history, so many of those followers had more time to read those books because they were already stuck at home during the pandemic. Yeah, more time, less connection. Exactly. And the person was telling them, this book has a happy ending, and your life is freaking terrible right now. And we don't know if there's a happy ending, (laughs) right? right? We're in the middle of the pandemic. We have no idea. We don't know. Exactly. So this was on a massive scale, but we already know that romance sales skyrocket in times of— distress and when bad things happen. So before the pandemic, um, I'm about to get a little dark here, but sales go would go up when there were mass shootings. You know, really publicized ones. We would get people on Twitter being like, please tell us your comfort reads. Like, tell us like the fluffiest, most, you know, comforting book you can read. Because romance is the genre of hope and oftentimes joy. And happy endings. And happy endings. So I think all the the moment of history that we were in, in, you know, combined with the ability to share more than we ever have been able to before, this was like all at once. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you said this because oftentimes as a reporter, we hear around mass shootings that gun sales go up and yeah. that ammo sales go up yep. because people are fearful of regulation. Mm-hmm. I actually am comforted by the idea it's, that there are some people out there who buy something else. Yeah. <laughs> it is comforting to think of. You know, book talk is a way for people to see other people's enthusiasm about books. Mm-hmm. So something that we see all the time in our bookstore, someone is browsing on the shelf, overhears someone else talking about books and said, oh, if you liked this, you have to read this. Book talk and rom- the romance industry has always run on enthusiasm. 
and self-perpetuated Prior to social media, mm-hmm. prior to all of this, right? It was always a community-centered, kind of like science fiction or fantasy. But so much less so. Like, depending on where you lived, right. you know, it, it, you just got lucky if you lived somewhere that there were, Well, there's this know. study from the 70s of romance readers. It's fascinating. And it figured out there was this one small town and there was this one bookseller. Oh, I remember this. Who was responsible for all the romance that was being sold in, like, six towns around her. She was the person everyone was going to. And so from her, they kind of, like, extrapolated this, like, idea of what the romance reader was at that time, which was a middle-aged, often stay-at-home mother, and she became known as Dot. And Dot became the name for the romance reader. But that's important to understand because also if you're trying to please a white middle-aged woman in the 70s or whatever, if you have this very specific demographic in your mind, the market starts to also turn in that way. Mm-hmm. And that's not who was only re- I mean, of course, they are reading romance novels, but that's not who was only reading romance novels. Right. So what we saw is that some people didn't get to see themselves in traditionally published romance novels in that era. And we are now in an era where we are hoping and praying that we are continuing to make change and show more people themselves in romance novels. So who is drawn to this genre now? Mm. Like, do you think you have a different kind of clientele than this imagined bookseller Dot (laughs) did (laughs) way back when? Dot has never been our customer, to be totally honest. Um, And she was never our target demographic. We wanted to build a romance bookstore for young romance readers, our customer base is largely under 40, not exclusively. Do they have different expectations and how does that play out in what they ask for? We talked about the different genres and yes. some of that stuff sounds almost old school. So oh, for what sure. are they doing now that does make them distinct? I think largely do not care about the sexuality of the characters that they read. I think many older readers would never, if they were heterosexual, would never read a queer romance because they just thought that the plot sounded fun because they, quote, can't relate to it. Which is also a long-term thing that white editors have said, oh, well, white readers won't relate to black characters. Even though the plots fundamentally are the same or the plot conventions are the same. they're relating to this book about werewolves. Like, yeah. come I just you can relate wild. to freaking medieval fairies. Yeah, yeah it's, it's ridiculous. It's nuts, but very telling, I think, of of where people's blind spots are. After the break, we dig into romance tropes and how does romance approach consent in the Me Too era? Literally, there's part of me that's like, absolutely, we should not romanticize this. This is abuse. This sucks. And then there's another part of me that's like. Who cares if someone wants to read this? Like, they know that it's not real life. They're not going to go looking to get kidnapped. Like, who am I to judge? We'll be right back. We were talking to one of your booksellers, and she starts describing the kinds of books that are there. I love a grumpy sunshine. I love a forced proximity. If you're going to give me only one bed, I'm in, and I don't care if you are in magic or if you are in, like, 1743 or if it's, like, San Francisco. I'm in. (laughs) So in terms of repeating plot conventions, what is grumpy sunshine? Grumpy sunshine is when you have one character who is grumpy. Uh, It's quite literal. (laughs) Very, very literal. It's often a male character. That has changed dramatically recently. We've seen a lot of switched genders and same-sex 
grumpy sunshines. The sunshine character is, you know, some people might call it a manic pixie dream girl type. They have a positive outlook on life, and the grumpy person has maybe a negative outlook on life. And it's when they much, come together, they yeah, fall in love. It's very much like opposites attract. Yes. I think like a pop culture example is like when Harry met Sally. What is force proximity? Force proximity is you are here with a guest in your podcast studio, and because of wacky, crazy circumstances, the door gets locked, and overnight you are stuck in here. And so you have to bond and get to know each other, and then you realize that you— Oh, my gosh, you're in love. —have feelings for each other. And maybe before you guys got locked in here, you were bitter rivals, work rivals. You can't stand each other. And you're forced into the studio for some reason. So then it goes from enemies to lovers plus forced proximity. So you get two tropes. So it's like trapped one. in an elevator, snowed in, uh, your plane crashes. <laughs> yeah. you know. If that is a trope, I'm really missing out, the yeah. plane crash. Um, so what does that mean in terms of, like, how the genre has changed? It's Like, because that's kind of taming of the shrew, right? Right. No, tropes are so old. Tropes are freaking biblical. Like, tropes are Shakespearean. Adam and Eve. Yeah. That's forced proximity. Great. (laughs) You're you're literally the the first man on earth. Tropes (laughs) are are older than old. So it's all about how authors are interpreting them in their, you know, whatever setting they're putting it in. So whether that's historical, contemporary, whether there's werewolves running around. And it is something that some people view negatively in terms of like, oh, everything is the same. But the whole reason I like reading and discovering new authors is to see what spin somebody can put on a trope that's been done a thousand times. Um, it's all the more impressive to me if you can. And we it- definitely have like trope specific readers. So people will come in and say, I love enemies to lovers. What can you recommend? And We'll kind of start from there. Other people are like, oh, I love X author. Oh, great. If you like that author, you might like that. It's just a different way into the genre for different people. How has this dialogue changed kind of post Me Too and post the conversation about consent? I think that so many of these stories do rely on, like, reluctance as a factor. (laughs) And um, we can certainly point to all kinds of examples of where that reluctance can be overcome, right, by people's quote-unquote passions. And I, I have wondered how this new generation reads those stories. There's a very famous historical romance novel called The Flame and the Flower by Kathleen Woodowis. It's often cited as one of the first romance novels, which is, it is of an era, and it does feature a rape. There is a rape scene, and the woman falls in love with her rapist. And there's another beloved, uh, Whitney, my love, where it's like kind of a Pygmalion story where he's basically been like crafting her into the perfect wife. And it's like, you read that now and it just kind of turns your stomach. We don't sell it in the store. Like we don't really get asked for it. It's not what young readers are really looking for. But it is the history of the genre. And it's the reason bodice rippers is a term that has been used to reference romance novels for yes, a very long you're time. you're not ripping off your own bodice. No, someone, someone is ripping— Someone helps you. Someone is ripping it for you. Um, I I went to graduate school, studied romance novels, and wrote a graduate thesis titled Mending the Ripped Bodice. And it was a linguistic study of a data set of romance novels, and it was studying how many bodices are ripped in these romance novels. I bet you can guess the answer. <laughs> it was zero. Yeah. <laughs> zero. 
Um, so it was like this term that's been put on these books that doesn't really have anything to do with them. I mean, the covers sometimes imply. Uh, of course. It's what other people are kind of putting on it rather than the readers or the writers themselves. So was there any concerted movement? And I, I know you're not authors or publishers, so I hope I'm not putting you in an awkward position. But is there any way to make consent sexy? Absolutely. Yes. And this, are people actually writing about oh, that? Yeah. This is Leah. The, there, I don't think there was— there's not like one moment you can mm-hmm. point to. It's been a very gradual shift. But 90% of romances that are published in 2023 are going to have explicit discussions of consent, boundaries, triggers, contraception, STIs, all different kinds of things. And it's so much more— Contraception and STIs? Yes. Absolutely. In Are an ex- we going to put a condom in on? an explicit you, way? When was last time you had a yes? S- 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 Were you test? tested? I see. So they create. It's part of the modern day yes. dynamic and, of love. Is what they're showing. What they are doing, and in particular for young people, is they're giving them concrete examples of how to have these conversations in a way that doesn't like quote kill the mood or whatever. Because mm. um, that is a big discussion, yeah, right? Yeah, well, totally. like culturally, it was like, oh my goodness, I'll how have could to we possibly sign ask? a document exactly. before I kiss a woman. You're saying that women in particular are actually writing versions of these stories of how that would play out. There is a modeling of some kind. Right. And they're showing you that it can be not a big deal or maybe it is a big deal. Like, it's just we were lucky we had, like, decent sex ed, but it was always very theoretical. They're always like, you know, make sure you talk about contraception, but no one tells you how to do it. Or when to do it or what to say. ask have you been tested and not make someone feel like you're accusing them. If you think about it, I mean, there's still the genre of what? Dark romance, Mm -hmm. right? Which does involve, yes, I guess I could say BDSM or does involve violation of consent as part of its sexuality, like over the course of the story. These things all live alongside the history of the genre Um, itself. I think we should define a couple of terms. So, I mean, there's no, like, governing body of romance, so I'm—this is just my personal definition, but— Leah. Leah. (laughs) Leah's definition of dark romance is contains something that you would never want to happen to you in real life. I.e. a kidnapping. Correct. Talk about forced proximity. Yes. That's probably the most extreme example. And that totally could happen in, like, a non-dark romance as well, but, you know, it's a lot of, like, mafia, crime, kidnapping, assault. I think there is a— tendency to oversimplify a little bit like why people might want to read that. Um, and the, the dark romance question is a interesting and complicated one. Yeah. And literally there's part of me that's like, like, absolutely, we should not romanticize this. This is abuse. Like, this sucks. And then there's another part of me that's like, who cares if someone wants to read this? Like, they know that it's not real life. They're not going to go looking to get kidnapped. Like, wh- who am I to judge? Who gives a I think another thing people say all the time in the romance community is, like, we're getting judged or, you know, questioned about things that we're including in our books that other authors are allowed to include in their books. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't really agree with that because romance is romanticizing things. And a hero is a hero and a heroine is a heroine. And those characters are are in my mind, and this is just a personal preference, supposed to be morally good people. Yes, and I don't mean to hold women to a different standard, right? Like, because I do, as a as a journalist, I can hear myself doing a thing we do do, which is to say, well, what about the bad men? What about the bad people 
who will take a lesson away from this and say, see, they really want it. Yeah, they told mm-hmm. us they wanted it. You you do have this sense of like, not what about the children, but a kind of version <laughs> of that, you yeah, know, like totally. what, what message is this sending at any given time? Mm-hmm. It sounds like you guys are making the case for like, what if there's no message? Like, what if it's okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What if... It's just a sexy it's story. It's just a book. And you enjoy reading it for literally a dozen different reasons. And th- with so many things with romance, I'm like, there's a really complicated version and there's a really simple <laughs> version. Yeah. And for a lot of people, the really simple version is it turns them on. Yeah, and that's like great. I want you to leave me with some recommendations. Hell yeah. We would love to. Okay. Could we make so, a... <laughs> this is how we do it at the store. Are you ready? For like, <laughs> we have some follow-up questions. Oh, you have questions for me? Well, yeah. because we... So, yes, I could just give very, very general recommendations, which I'm happy to do. But the whole point of this is we want something tailored to you. Um, so, like, are you interested in a historical, contemporary, or paranormal? It goes on like this. I mean, for, like... 30 minutes, them going back and forth with their recommendations, and they could have spent hours. And after a while, I really got it. You know, I really understood the appeal of hanging out with them in the stacks, on the hunt, with a perfect love story. Do you want something funny, something more serious? Those are some of the questions that we ask. I want something that will embarrass my sons in in five to ten years. Okay, we can definitely love. Because these days, there's something for everyone. I mean, everyone. Is there, like, public radio romance? There yes. is. Yes! I do not. Sorry if I can't swear. I can say it again. I was it, joking. It exists. It exists. It's called The X Talk. It's fantastic. By Rachel Lynn Solomon. They work at an NPR station in Seattle, and they, like— they have a mandate to create a new show about romance, and they, for some reason, decide that they're going to pretend to be a couple, but they hate each other. Forced proximity. There you go. Are they in the studio for a lot? <laughs> they do go on, like, a planning yeah. road trip to, like, some island off the coast of Seattle where they're, like, stuck in a house together. It is so good. I cannot recommend it enough. The oh, oh someone is pointing out to me that that's fake dating. Yes. Which is a whole, another whole yes. slot yes. model. They're in a fake relationship. I can't, maybe they don't hate All each other. I can't remember. For a but. public media show, I can't think of lower stakes <laughs> to no, pretend to be dating they for. Are. They're like, their station manager is like, you oh know, my God. we're okay, going to have to You just cut. said their station manager. I'm done. I'm done. There is no scenario. <laughs> it's so good. That's the least sexiest Literally thing I've ever heard. Literally, the cover of the book is this is, microphone. Yeah, it's a microphone. All right, well, that's sexy. Yes. The X Talk by Rachel Lynn Solomon. <laughs> I appreciate that. Highly recommend. <laughs> that was Leah Koch and B. Hodges Koch, owners of the Ripped Bodice Bookstore, which has locations in L.A. and Brooklyn. And that's it for today's episode. If you liked it, please share it. If you loved it, go ahead and give us five stars or a full-on review. Help more people discover the show. This episode of The Assignment, a production of CNN Audio, was produced by Jennifer Lai and Isoke Samuel. Our producers include Lori Gallaretta, Carla Javier, and Dan Bloom. Matt Martinez is the senior producer of our show. Michael Hammond did mixing and sound design. Dan DeZula is our technical director. The executive producer of CNN Audio is Steve Lichtai. Special thanks this week to the booksellers and customers who spoke to us at the Ribbed Bodice in Brooklyn. And of course, thank you all 
for listening. I'm Audie Cornish. This is actually far more sexual an episode than the one we did on OnlyFans. Okay, you guys have outdone them all. Thank you. Thank you. Consider that good. Because people are embarrassed to talk to us, and I we try to really keep a straight face so that they don't feel embarrassed. Because we're like, they're like, do you have um threesomes? I'm like, yeah, right this way. Also, someone ten minutes ago asked for something way more insane. Threesomes, we got threesomes. Yeah, (laughs) that's like so tame.